Today's reading is from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, if there's one thing I hate more than anything else, something that when I've had to do it, it gives me night sweats just thinking about it, it's moving. You know, I hate almost everything about moving, whether it's the pile of boxes, the overwhelming sense of clutter, or even those clumps of dust the size of small animals you find under your dresser that you haven't looked under since the day you moved into that place, right? It's awful. And yet there's one thing, I think the saving grace to moving, the one thing that keeps me sane when I move, and that's getting rid of stuff. Now, I want to be clear, not my stuff. <laughs> Other people's stuff, you know? When I think of my kids, how many toys do they need to wreak havoc on my ankles and stab my feet? I mean, how many lenses does my wife Allie need for her photography business to flourish anyway? But my stuff, yeah, maybe I haven't touched it in three years, but we need to hold on to it. Why? Because then we'll have it, of course, right? And even if you're single and you don't have a roommate. The, the common complaint I hear from people time and again when they move to a loft is, I just wish there was more storage. Yeah, exactly. We all, even if you're a minimalist, yes, even you, love your stuff. You may have less stuff than the rest of us, but the stuff you do have, you can't imagine living without. I love my stuff. You know, a box of DVDs I've maybe watched once, a shelf of books I've never read, wacky sweatshirts I never wear, maybe a box of tools I haven't touched. But I need it, all of it. Because the more I think about what I really want, it's not that I want a minimal amount of stuff. I just want the maximum amount of space for my stuff, right? You know what I mean when it comes to that moving cycle. We love our stuff. I remember when we moved to a loft, I used to scoff when we would drive back at those storage facility units and think, who has that much stuff? And when we moved into a loft, you basically have one of those miniature things in your basement, right? I walked in there thinking, what am I going to put in here? And it quickly transitioned to, what else can I fit in here? Because we love our stuff. All kinds of stuff, all shapes and sizes, shiny stuff, sparkly stuff, eccentric stuff that we got from some eccentric place that has a story around it that no one cares about, stuff. But when we come to Jesus this morning, he sheds light on all the stuff of our lives. He actually shows us, he shows us that if we're not careful, amidst all the promises of pleasure, what you own will actually come 
to own you. The way he says it here in our passage is, wherever your heart is, there goes your treasure. Or wherever your treasure is, there goes your heart. We would think it's the other way around, but it's actually wherever your treasure is, there goes your heart. Whatever you love, there go your desires, there goes your focus, and that's exactly where you find your master. Because if there's one thing that Jesus reveals to us this morning about humanity, about you and me, it's that you are ruled by what you love. You are ruled by what you love. So choose wisely. Now, the question of our lives as to who's going to rule it is never a question of absolute freedom. Autonomy is an illusion. The question we must ask ourselves is who will we serve. In the iconic words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody, right? Everybody is serving someone. And the question we pose to ourselves is, what will what we serve give us what we're after? Will what we serve really deliver what we're hungering for, what we're looking for? Now, Jesus, he knows this question. Answering it is not a walk in the park. So he gives us three overlapping examples of the options before us. And he points us to a better treasure, a better lens, and a better master, all of which are centered on the one thing that is vying for the very center of our affections. You are going to be ruled by what you love. So what will you love? Happy Valentine's Day, <laughs> right? <laughs> Little twists. Now, <clears throat> if you're new with us, we've been walking through Matthew's historical account of Jesus and specifically zeroing in on the greatest sermon ever preached, preached by Jesus himself, the Sermon on the Mount. And time and again, when Jesus opens his mouth to teach us, he kind of turns everything we used to think about the rewarding life, what it means to be a good person on its head, which is why we've dubbed this section of Matthew the upside-down kingdom. At the very center of this topsy-turvy world, at the heart of the matter is always a matter of the heart. And we've seen two weeks ago that our broken hearts are behind all the bad things we do, what is often called sin. And also, the very hidden audience of our hearts is at the forefront of every good thing we do, our good deeds, our righteousness. And this morning, we see that the desires of our heart set and determine the very trajectory of our lives. The desires of our hearts determine the trajectory of our lives. Now, if you've got your little note sheet that you got when you came in this morning, you may notice that it's called a better master part one. And that's because when our hearts grow disordered, specifically around money and stuff, we head in one of two directions. We either become enslaved to our stuff, spoiler alert, that's this morning, or we become enslaved to our fear and anxiety, which is two weeks out, okay? That's next week. But Jesus, he longs to show us the better way in both. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. If you're using one of our community Bibles, it's on page number 811. It's right here that Jesus begins centering our conversation around one of the most inordinate love affairs of our day, our love for money and stuff. And he points us to reorient our love towards a better treasure. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. 
Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the translation, do not lay up, I don't think adequately captures what Jesus is seeking to communicate. It almost makes it seem like we're standing in front of an open storage unit, deciding whether or not we're going to throw in all of grandma's knickknacks, okay? Instead, a better translation of Jesus' direction here is, stop laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. Besides the grammar within the Greek that points us in that direction, Jesus also knows we're already in the midst of this. This isn't something we're about to do, but it's something we're already doing. So we need to stop laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. Think about it. How much time do we spend treasuring all the things that this world has to offer? Chasing after money, accumulating more and more stuff, spelling content, M-O-R-E. We need a decisive breaking point. Stop laying up for yourself treasures on earth. But I don't want you to hear me saying that stuff is inherently bad. Jesus certainly isn't saying that. I mean, we are treasuring creatures. We are hardwired for desire. And we've actually been invited to delight in God's good world in the same vein that God does on the seventh day of creation, where he sits and he stops from his work and he delights in the material world that he created and of all things calls it good at the very beginning of Genesis. Ascribing value, both sentimental and financial, to the stuff of our lives is a crucial component of actually what it means to be human. It's good. And often the authors of Scripture speak to this at various places as well. Later on in the Gospel account of Matthew, where we are, we read of Jesus when he tells the parable of the talents and the beauty of investing your stuff rather than just discarding it. We hear from the Apostle Paul when he's talking to one of his protégés, Timothy, that the importance of not just caring for the nuclear family, but your extended family and the, ex the, the growing financial capacity that's needed to actually do that well. We also see from the wise sage who wrote Proverbs, time and again, the wisdom on building up a life savings in case of crises, or even the beauty of passing on generational wealth. These are good things when we look at the total narrative of Scripture. So what exactly then is Jesus warning us against? That's the question. When our deepest desires are anchored, our deepest desires are anchored in the stuff of this world, then as it begins to pass away, so will the very core of who we are. So will the very core of who we are. Because what we value, what we value most, it always takes the wheel of our will it holds the thermostat of our emotions, and it becomes the primary factor in our decision-making process. And if we allow our greatest treasure to be in the things of this world, we will eventually be left empty-handed and stranded. And Jesus doesn't want that for any one of us. That's why this question of what we value is so crucial, because your very soul is at stake here. Do you know what you value most? 
Do you know what you've given the driver's seat to in your life? To help discern that, I want to invite you to make an inventory of your treasures. Make an inventory of your treasures, which is more than just saying what's the kind of stuff you've got in your closet or your storage facility. But where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your talents? Where are you investing your money? Because listen, you don't have to have a Swiss bank account to be enslaved to money. You could be coated in debt with not even two nickels to rub together and just as enslaved to money and stuff as anyone else. So what do you daydream about? What are you consistently perusing on Amazon? What's full on your wish list? What are you willing to go into debt to get? What can you not say no to? This begins to give a window into your heart, what you're treasuring. Let me ask you another question. What, what would your lifestyle reveal about you? If you were to look at my credit card statement or my bank statement, you would very quickly come to realize what I love. And that's a very terrifying thought, isn't it? To share your credit card statement or your budget with someone. And yet, if we were to do that very quickly and fairly definitively, we would be able to tell who loves what. I want you to hear this morning, so often we can come to perceive that Jesus is inviting us to some masochistic journey. That's not it. Jesus is not pushing against self-concern. He is pushing against selfishness, which inevitably destroys the self. If you look in verses 19 and 20, both are storing up, laying up treasures for yourselves. You should have grave concern about what you are seeking after and what that speaks to the very eternal trajectory of your soul. And Jesus, he just wants to give us the better treasure. He wants our lives to be centered on what will care for us in the long term. So if that treasure is money or stuff, the ultimate treasure is money or stuff, it's not only wrong-hearted, we'll come to find out that it's actually wrong-headed because fashions change. Some of you will finally get that, <laughs> catch up. Um, some of you are still recovering from the market crash of 2008. You know, stuff breaks. Every time I fix something on my house, it seems like something else breaks. Thieves take. Credit cards are hacked. Identities are stolen. But what if you chose a better treasure? A treasure where the very priorities of heaven guide you and the very possessions that you now are called to steward. How therefore, whenever that stuff were to come or go, increase or decrease, you remain steady in your purpose and your soul, your soul remains robust. Jesus is promising a better return. And not the, hey, if you give $10, you're going to get $100 in return. That's myopic. And it actually reveals what you're enslaved to more than anything else. Because you're using God as your vending machine, your, your, your ATM. Instead, it's so much bigger than that. Choose a better treasure. Make an inventory of where you currently are placing your treasure. And treat yourself. <laughs> to the better treasure if you care anything about the trajectory of your heart. Now, Jesus moves on because he knows he can't just talk about a better treasure. He also points us to a better lens. It's almost like Jesus sees everybody nodding their heads saying, okay, Jesus, we get heaven is better than earth. Sure, your kingdom of heaven is coming because this earth is whacked out and you're bringing and you're making all things right. 
And Jesus says, hold on, folks. Your lens is still broken. You need a better lens. Look what he says here in verses 22 through 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Now, these words are not easy to understand. This can feel like some cryptic metaphor. But basically, in the same vein that you use a lamp to light a darkened path, your eyes are used to help navigate your body. And Jesus' day talking about the eye this way is almost part and parcel with talking about the heart. The difference is we don't ask the question like we would with the heart, what are you longing for? Instead, when we talk about the eye, we ask, what are you looking for? So for example, if your eye is healthy, then the whole body is able to see its environment for what it is, and you're able to walk through the world secure. The person who has their focus on the kingdom of heaven is actually able to see everything in its true worth, its real relationship to the way it actually is. They're the kind of person who sees the right path, a person who knows the best pursuits in life. But if your eye is bad, if it's distorted, then your whole body fumbles through a world of shadows. And if that light in you, what Jesus is saying is the eye of your soul is distorted, then you're going to find that you're in the dark about everything. The very way you see yourself now becomes distorted with a broken self-worth. The lens in which you see others is always through how much money do they make, what do they have, or what can they give me, rather than who they are. If you've ever been the person or have been related or connected to someone who's been consumed with addiction, then you know their delusion of the world encompasses their body, their soul, their relationships, everything, all distorted to revolve around their addiction. And an intervention is those who are closest to that individual who see the world they've forgotten to see. They're too blind to see. And they just might trust them enough to say, you see something I don't, help me. Help me. You know, greed is kind of unique when it comes to the aspects of our wrestling, to sinful, destructive patterns. Because if you were to commit murder or you were to commit adultery, you know it. <laughs> So nobody's waking up in the bed with a woman that's not their wife saying, hey, you're not my wife. What happened? You know, you know exactly what you've done. And yet no one thinks that their lens is broken when it comes to greed. And yet we are fumbling more in the dark in this one particular area than I think most of us realize. Let me shed a little light on exactly what this means. I was doing some digging this week and you know, that according to what the Missouri Economic Research and Information Center considers the median income for Jackson County, okay, we are in the top 0.44% of people in the world by income. Not 44%, not 1%, 0.44%. With roughly 7.3 billion people on the planet today, that means only roughly about 32 million people make more money than the average Jackson County individual. That means that 7.27 billion people make less income than I do. <laughs> 
and yet we think we need to make more money. No, we don't have any issues with greed, do we? I mean, come on. <laughs> Look, if you want a better lens, if you want to see the very reality in which each one of us sit in with our great wealth, if you want to understand with to greater depths as to how you're enslaved to money, then you need to discern what it is you're looking for. After you've made this inventory of your treasures, then discern what it is you're looking for in life. Why you're chasing after these treasures. I mean, what does money promise you? Is it comfort? The leisure to be able to go out to eat whenever you want? Is it status? To finally validate to those closest friends, those family members, to yourself that you've made it. <clears throat> As I wrestled quite a bit through this passage in my own life this week, um, I was rummaging around in my heart and thinking, okay, I'm a part of this 0.44% too. And I think the one thing I look for in money and stuff the most is security. Security. You know, it's interesting. Where do you put your money to ensure that thieves don't break in? A safe, right? We long for security. And I, I grew up in a single-parent home where both of my sisters had to, to work and help contribute to pay for the bills. My mom, who'd never worked a day in her life at age 40, had to go find a job full-time just to put food on the table. I remember the stress, the overwhelming anxiety, and I never want that for my wife and kids. I want to be able to contribute for part of their college. I probably won't be able to ever pay for all of it, <laughs> the way costs are going, but I want to pay for part of it. Um, you know, if an emergency strikes our family, I want us to be somewhat prepared. And I know this is good. This is a good desire. But the good quest for financial security can so subtly become our ultimate quest, can't it? That it suddenly takes all of my mental energy, all of my time, all of my money, such that it stifles any sort of generosity and relying ultimately on God's care for my family takes a back seat. We are so skilled at self-deception, especially here when it comes to money and good things. And that's why if you want to take a step forward at better discerning what it is you're looking for, you've got to have a family conversation about money. Talk with your spouse. Bring your kids into the conversation. If you're single, invite in a trusted friend. Someone you can lay out your budget, lay out your credit card statements and say, what do you see about my heart here? I mean, we talk about work struggles. We talk about parenting struggles. We talk about school struggles. We even talk about our sexual struggles. But suddenly when it comes to money, it's like, hey, 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 bro, <laughs> you know, that's a little weird. Or one of my favorites, you know, I'm just not a money guy. Well, Great. You know, why, why is this one area in our culture where we are the most opaque with one another? Why is that? That that is completely off limits. It's probably because this is where one of our biggest idolatries lie. And shame and guilt keeps the door locked from transparency. Now, <laughs> because I've heard stories of this, I don't want you to think that I, that I want you to show the pastors all of your W-2s. Please don't, okay? That's not what I'm asking. Let's be very clear. But I am saying that your lens is broken and you need another set of trusted eyes on your finances to help you see your blind spots here. Can you discern what it is you're looking for? Choose a better lens to see the world. 
and invite somebody else's trusted eyes to help you see it better. But Jesus, he doesn't stop here. And thank God he doesn't stop here because he sees right through us. He sees right through me. I think one of my biggest temptations, even in the midst of all of this, is I think that I can serve money and stuff and the kingdom of heaven simultaneously. Well, you don't understand, Jesus. I've got the capacity to keep these things in tension. And he calls us to the carpet and says, no, you will be ruled by what you love. And so you need to choose a better master. You need to choose a better master. Look with me here at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. What's Jesus talking about? You cannot serve God and money. There's no question as to what Jesus is highlighting here. Listen, following Jesus isn't like getting a part-time job where you've got the margin for a little something-something on the side, okay? Jesus is talking about slavery and ownership. We will be the slaves to someone. And the two masters that are available to us are either almighty God or the almighty dollar. Which one will you choose? You see, an attempt to serve both isn't simply a void of the apprenticeship that Jesus is inviting us to. This sort of deep-seated commitment is to idolatry, and God will have nothing of it. This is very serious, which is why we oftentimes don't talk about it. Look, and to be clear once again, not that we are to not delight in God's good world, of course, but hear me, we must learn to make money your servant and not your master. Make money your servant, not your master. You know, money can be a really great servant. After you've cultivated a sustainable lifestyle and watched lifestyle creep, that as your income increases, your lifestyle doesn't creep with it, and so now you have the capacity for generosity, you can put those funds and employ it to come alongside the vulnerable in our community, to help be a catalyst of economic development in under-resourced neighborhoods, to underwrite the furtherance of the gospel proclamation in and through the local church. If there's one thing you've heard me say a million times, it's that we believe the local church as God designed it is the hope of the world. Not that, I know that can sound really arrogant and hear me, we're not perfect. Where we get that from is what Jesus says and promises that the gates of hell will not even overcome, be able to prevail against the church. And over 2,000 years of resilience have proven him to be true. 2,000 years. If you're not giving to your local church, you're missing out. It's not something we want from you, but something we genuinely want for you. So listen, okay, money can be a really great servant for seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven as a catalyst to do God's work, but it is a terrible, terrible master. Promising everything and yet leaving you always wanting. If you've ever read the Narnia series... It's kind of like the white witch who comes promising Edmund, Turkish delight, and promises him he'll be a king. But instead, in the end, he becomes a slave, munching on dry bread with a mouthful of ash. That is what money, if we make it our ultimate treasure, will leave us with. So rule your money. Don't let it rule you. Show it who's boss. And here's how you do it. This is the first statement and one of the most amazing statements you can make to show your money who's boss. You can practice generosity. Practice generosity. You know, in the Apostle Paul, he's, he's ending his time with, 
he planted a church in Ephesus, and he's ending his time with these leaders in the church of Ephesus. And he'd been there for a few years, and he leaves them with this final word, the one thing, if they can just remember, if they would just take this and live this out, it will transform the very culture of that community that will then impact the wider neighborhood. It's this. He says, don't forget what Jesus says. It is more blessed to give than receive. Now, if you're anything like me, the first thing I start thinking about is all the things I haven't received yet, not the things I have to give, okay? And that's good old master money seeking to guide your desires, pointing you in a way of more accumulation that you don't have enough. Because if you were to walk into this room and before I'd given you the statistic that you are 0.44% in that top echelon, would you say that you feel rich? No, you are rich. But who cares about being rich? It's everything about feeling rich, right? Because there's always somebody who's got more than you, always, at least 32 million people, basically. Who cares that the 7.27 billion, but the 32 million, I'm not rich. That's master money, seeking to delude our lens and calling us to servitude, and it will leave us in destruction. And if that's you this morning, I want to give you five quick actions, okay? We're going to get real practical. After you've made an inventory of your treasures and you're dis you've discerned what it is you're looking for, here are five actions on how to start breaking out of the bonds of our stuff. First, make a budget. I know that just made some of your skin crawl. Make a budget. You can't be generous if you don't know what you have because you can't give away what you don't have. And trust me, ignorance isn't bliss. It's just another form of slavery, just because you're ignoring the chains doesn't mean you aren't enslaved. Make a budget. Second, buy things for their usefulness, not their status or the feelings they give you. I mean, how many times have you walked into the store and say, well, I could buy this big screen TV or feel my feelings. Charge it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> how about instead buying those things or when you go to buy a car, say, okay, I can afford this top-notch vehicle. But what if I could actually, is there a lower level vehicle that's still reliable that I could purchase to give myself more financial margin to be generous? Now, you can't do that until you've discerned what it is you're looking for. Because then you can determine whether you actually need this or it's there just to bolster your image. Thirdly, choose gratitude rather than grumbling. This is a way of saying, I'm going to praise God for what he has given me rather than always just worrying about what he hasn't. This is just a better way to live. And then fourthly, develop a, ha develop a habit of giving things away. For some of you, that may mean start giving to the local church. That's not even part of your rhythm. For others of you, that's as simple as carrying an extra pen in your pocket. Someone says, someone says hey, can I borrow a pen? You say, yeah, why don't you just keep it? I don't know what it looks like for you, but... Develop these habits of giving things away such that generosity becomes a part of who you are rather than just something you do offhand. Because listen, if you want to make money a servant rather than your master, you have to learn to employ it towards the purposes of the kingdom. Otherwise, it will bury you here on earth. You have to learn to give it away. Kids, that may mean you've got one extra stuffed animal. And you seek out a friend to give away that extra stuffed animal or an extra box of Legos. For some, that's really hard. Um, for others of you, you have extra clothes. We all have extra clothes that are in the back of the drawer that you forgot were there. A piece of furniture that's collecting dust. 
Generosity is one of the most powerful ways to make your money a servant rather than your master. But even after all of this, after all of this, if you want to rule money instead of letting it rule you, if you don't want the stuff you own to own you, you need a better master who doesn't come making demands and offering empty promises. First and foremost, you need a master who has come first to give his life that he might buy us back from our own slavery, a slavery of our own making. We need a master, a one-of-a-kind master who saw us, who treasures us, who came to us in the person of Jesus. He left the wealth of heaven and entered into our poverty that he might die a death that even is shameful for a slave and so pay our eternal debt and that he might give to his followers a down payment of what is to come. The person of the Holy Spirit who longs to shine a light on the darkness of our desires and show us a world through which we can see now through generosity rather than scarcity. You will be ruled by what you love. And you have a choice as to what you will love. Choose a better treasure. Choose a better lens. Choose a better master. Because his rule is better and the most freeing feeling than anything else this world can offer. Where your treasure is, there goes your heart. Treasure Christ, and all these things will be added unto you. Let's pray. God, I know there's nothing that makes us more fidgety than when we start talking about what's in our back pockets. And our silence so often in our conversations about exactly this show just how often we are blinded to our own greed. And we're so unaware how this is destroying us. God, may you do your heart surgery in pointing us to a better treasure, the treasure of Christ and his kingdom. God, may you give us eyes to see. May you give us loved ones and friends around us to help us see through a better lens, the lens of your kingdom. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide us by the power of your spirit in a submission to a better master one who comes offering freedom and genuinely gives it rather than offering us slavery in return. God, you are good and your mercy endures forever. Free us from the shackles of our stuff. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of his spirit. Amen.